Welcome to Scope of Practice, a podcast that opens a window for an inside look into different practice groups and the life of attorneys in those groups at Ropes and Gray. I'm Yoni Levy, an associate in our asset management group based in Boston. On this episode, I'm joined by Young Yoon, an associate in our asset management group based in New York. Hi, Young. Hi, Yoni. Thanks for joining me. Of course. Pleasure. I'd like to open, I think, with a bit of background about you. Maybe you could just tell us about yourself personally um, and then sort of lead into your practice at Ropes and Gray um, and, and sort of how you wound up in that practice. Of course. I was actually born and raised in Korea. So I came to the stateside for college. And then afterwards, I thought it was, you know, it made more sense to pursue advanced degree here as well. So I went to law school here. And then after law school, I, you know, wanted to, you know, get the best training, you know, as as, as a starting practitioner in this field, which I thought, you know, law firm would be the best place to start. You know, here I am. I am part of the asset management group at Ropes and Gray, and that involves representing, you know, folks who set up and run and manage and invest money on behalf of private funds, but also investors who invest in those fund products. Great. Thanks. And can you tell us how long have you been working in the field um, and, and sort of how you found the different levels of seniority that you've gone through, how you found those experiences? As with many law students, you know, law students fresh out of law school, I was hoping to get the best training that was out there, but also looking to join a place known for, you know, the breadth of practice, uh, since that would naturally give you, you know, broader exposure and just give you more options. And also a place where it had a really nice culture, some place that I could naturally fit in. Um, so I decided to join Ropes and Gray and gradually found interest in uh, our asset management group after trying out a few different areas at the firm. And the main draw for me was the fact that, you know, compared to other practice areas, uh, asset management was, you know, largely about working on deals where both sides are working towards a common goal, a long-term commitment and relationship for making, you know, profitable investments as opposed to the more, you know, the so-called buy and sell one-off transactions and that are, you know, uh, a little bit more transitory or uh, just more discreet in nature. And so I appreciated that long-term nature of the asset management work. Um, and on top of that, asset management happens to also have a fantastic culture. And so, you know, I naturally found my place, my nesting place in, uh, in, in this group. Maybe this is a good time, Young, to explore and clarify the difference between the various terms that you hear used in this area. I think for a lot of law students that I speak to, the terms corporate, M&A, transactional, all sort of fall into one large soup of terms for them, and it's hard to differentiate between them. So maybe you could talk to us a little bit about what you do within the firm, within the corporate group, how the corporate group is distinguished from other groups, and then more specifically, how your work in asset management might differ from others in the corporate group. Within the corporate department, we also have, you know, different practice areas. And, you know, when I think of asset management, um, it is, it is you know, it is oftentimes compared to transactions where uh, they are more one-off in nature. For instance, you could be selling or buying a company or making an investment or you could be buying real estate or making uh, debt financing for uh, purpose of making that real estate investment happen. So those are examples of what we call a one-off transaction where the parties come together and sign and close and you know, you have one party that's selling and the other party who's buying. And that's, 
that's kind of that's kind of it, right? But then for for asset management, um, it does involve the signing and closing process, but it's for usually for a longer term arrangement because I view it as you know, uh, willing parties, investors, and the asset managers coming together for a longer-term relationship, where they're just not buying and selling, but they're committing to a common investment goal. So it could be 10 years, it could be even longer, or it could be five years, a little bit shorter, but it's usually a longer-term arrangement. Um, And so one good way uh, that I've heard of how to visualize this in the context of our firm's, you know, private capital transactions group and asset management group, is that in the asset management space, we're helping we're helping asset managers set up uh, legal entities. We'll be, you know, accepting, raising, and accepting investors' capital into it, and that's the part that asset management is focused on, right? Creating that long-term relationship with the investors. And that once that money has been raised, then it's time for deployment of that capital to actually go out and make investments and return profit. The the first part about raising the capital and setting up these entities and negotiating with the investors, that's sort of where you know the asset management group mostly comes into play. But then once that capital has been raised, what do you do with that capital? Like you go out and make investments. That's kind of where the one-off transactions that you see. Um, that are being helped by um, our colleagues in the private capital transactions group. Needless to say, <laughs> asset management is part of the corporate practice, um, and it usually involves some element of funds, um, uh, which are vehicles uh, for asset managers to raise money and you know go out and make investments from. Um, and Private investments within asset management, which happens to be my focus area, is also a subgroup of the broader asset management umbrella. The private funds group deal with funds that are offered to more um, the sophisticated investors, if you will, like public pensions, as opposed to the more uh, retail investors, like myself or you know uh, some of you who might be listening to this podcast. Um, and it happens to be a quote-unquote hot area these days. Um, so uh, in terms of actual practice, um, you know, obviously I've just mentioned, but it, it involves helping managers set up these legal entities. Um, and um, I might be uh, negotiating agreements uh, based on which the investors will be coming into these entities. And yet I might also be helping on day-to-day, you know, operational ongoing aspect of making sure that these entities are in compliance with background law and they're dealing with, you know, one-off requests or ongoing requests from investors and other parties. Thanks. That's helpful. Uh, One of the things that I find funny is that those of us in this space, and, you know, I'm fortunate enough that you and I are are actually in this practice area together, um, tend to use the term fundraising. Um, which I think outside of the private equity space, people think that we're, you know, running charity fundraisers and, and actually going to, to raise the capital, uh, which, which uh, you know, you and I know is not the case. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what we mean when we say fundraising, what is the legal work actually involved in doing, you know, quote unquote fundraising. When we say fundraising, it is largely um, a, a generic term for setting up a corporate structure. It could be a corporation. It could be a partnership. It could be a limited liability company. But it could be. It, but it it involves setting up a legal structure, uh, in which investors 
would be invested, putting their money in. And that that entity structure would you then use that money to go out and make investments. So fundraising involves setting up the entity as well as negotiating complex documents to make sure that they are comfortable in making investments into this entity. And why do they need the documentation? Because the entities are ultimately run by the asset managers whom we you know, whom ROPES also regularly represents. And uh, they would like to make sure that, you know, they have the rights and the, you know, the types of obligations that could be, you know, they, they would feel comfortable with. Um, and so it, it involves setting up the entities, uh, making sure the right documentations are in place, and then some negotiations with investors who are putting money into these structures. And the, the other thing that we'll have to also consider is making sure that the setup as well as the uh, management of these legal structures are compliant with background law. It could be uh, securities law, it could be what's called advisor's act, but there are various laws in place in the U.S. that make sure that you know, raising capital and deploying capital and attracting investor money into these legal structures um, have a baseline of confidence. So when we use fundraising, it is a generic term to catch uh, a, broader, a broader sense of, of setting up legal structures, raising capital, and managing those legal structures um, until you know until its fulfillment of its of its original purpose. Thanks, that was helpful. Uh, perhaps I'll, that's a good pivot point to explain maybe the differences at a at a high level between you know private equity funds, which I know is a focus area of yours, um, hedge funds, which I know. Uh, is a big practice area of the firm, and, and many of the private equity funds lawyers also work on hedge funds at the same time, um, and then also the mutual fund space, and maybe how sort of the timeline and liquidity uh, in each of those impacts that fundraising that you were discussing, and you know the importance of the terms to the investors. There are various ways you could you know um, categorize and you know um, distinguish between different fund products. But as you mentioned, one way is to um, distinguish based on the timing and, and the timeline of, of these fund products. So on one end of the spectrum, you might have funds that are um, in existence for perpetuity, for how, however long as you know it has investor money to go out and invest. And on the other end of the spectrum, you might have funds that have a limited life span. And in between those um, are funds that have, you know, longer, but, you know, maybe uh, slightly shorter duration than anything, you know, close to perpetuity. And the timeline of these funds are also tied to whether investors have, uh, you know, a control over whether they can exit their investments from these funds. We call them liquidity um, because in order to achieve liquidity, once you make an investment, you have to exit. And obviously, the arrangement of these liquidities matter because think of a fund product where it has limited life uh, lifespan. And because of a li- limited lifespan, you want to have uh, capital tied to that structure during that lifespan so that you know uh, capital can be safely deployed, knowing that it won't get any you know significant disruption during its investment. As a result of that arrangement, um, investors might be more interested in making sure that you know various safeguards in place, and they have the right protections and rights and obligations that they feel comfortable before they make an investment. Whereas, if you have a fund that is longer in duration, 
um, and also can uh, has a broader investor pool from which it can draw capital and make investments. Um, it, it is not surprising that those funds might have more options and freedom for offering liquidity to investors. So an investor going into such a product, say a mutual fund or even a hedge fund, might be less worried about the various details surrounding that structure, but mostly they will be interested in making sure that to the extent they feel it's the right time to exit or they feel um, dissatisfied with the investment product, they're making sure that they have the right option at the right timing to make the, make the exit. So I think timeline is, is a very helpful uh, factor for distinguishing and thinking about different fund products. And then the one thing that's different between hedge funds and uh, mutual funds is that mutual funds are have more, more definitely more regulated than hedge funds, whereas hedge funds um, are those that um, are less regulated and uh, subject to less public as well as regulatory scrutiny. Thanks, Young. That's helpful. I, I think it's also similar to what you're saying about the investor liquidity, I think that that also impacts the types of investments that the product can be making. Uh, if you have to offer investors liquidity, like in a hedge fund or a mutual fund model, you also have to tailor your investments so that you have sufficient availability of liquidity. So you basically are, are going to be making more investments in things like stocks that can be sold more easily, um, you know, but publicly traded stocks, that is. Whereas, you know, in a in a private unregistered fund or a hedge or or a hedge fund to some degree, you might also have um, private private investments in uh, illiquid companies. So you know you might buy you know Home Depot or Dunkin' or you know those are those are classic examples and hold those privately, which will have, offer less liquidity to the fund, which in turn means the fund can offer less liquidity to the investors. Um, and I'd say also just to build on what you said about mutual funds being more heavily regulated, uh, that also is a result of the investors to whom it can be offered. So, you know, the people listening to this podcast uh, possibly, maybe even very likely, hold some form of mutual fund uh, or ETF for, you know, other type of product that's offered sort of publicly and you, there's no qualifications to make the investment. You just basically have to have the capital. Whereas in the space that you and I operate in, in the private funds world, and also in the hedge fund space, you have to be sufficiently sophisticated for the fund to fit within a certain exemption from registration. Um, and in order to do that, you have to have, you know, a certain amount of money or a certain amount of experience. Uh, and, you know, it's only offered to those uh, you know, or, or who are able to, in the SEC's estimation, uh, undertake the risk involved in making those types of investments. So that's helpful, I think, to give a, a sense of the scope of the type of work that we do. Um, so thanks for that, Young. I think maybe it would be helpful if you could also give us a sense of sort of what your practice looks like on a practical basis in terms of the types of tasks that you're doing and the timelines and how you think that relates to uh, or compares against some of the other uh, work that Ropes does or that other law firms might be doing um, in different practice areas. My day-to-day -day might involve complex contract drafting um, and also negotiations with investors and conference calls with clients and also um, with internally at Ropes. But 
a few things just to put things in perspective. Uh, my practice doesn't usually involve a heavy, you know, research, although it may involve research into background law because, you know, there are background law in place that to make sure that, you know, uh, you know, the, the, my, my clients um, are, are operating appropriately under the under the scrutiny of, of, of legal regimes that are set up in place. But I don't do heavy research and I don't usually do a lot of legal memos, for instance. A lot of my practice involves contra- heavy contract drafting, uh, um, and uh, and and client discussions and discussions with opposing parties. I find that that's part of what appeals to me about the group is that division of labor. I like contractual drafting because I find it to be very practical, um, and so you get to be creative, but always in a way of trying to draft the clearest and easiest solution to a particular problem. Right, and, and foresee potential issues and, and foreclose them in your drafting as opposed to you know more formal memo writing where you're spending a lot of time I think I found in law school for example uh, doing things like you know blue booking or you know checking citations those kinds of or procedural drafting you know there isn't a whole ton of that in our practice space um, to the extent that there are more you know quote unquote procedural terms those usually are just in a form that you're starting with, right? And you don't really spend a lot of time working on or thinking about the more form provisions, and you spend more time thinking about the actual substantive provisions. And similarly, I also like the negotiating aspect and the the phone calls because I don't like to look at a computer the entire day, Um, and I like to interact with people, and I've always found, you know, negotiating to be a fun sort of creative endeavor to try and find middle ground and, you know, highlight the things that are most important to your client and hear the other side and what's most important to them and, and work through, you know, where you can give, where you can take and, and work through that process together. I've always found that to be particularly interesting. Um, I'm sure it sounds like you do as well. Yeah. And just to add, Yoni, that's that's precisely it. And it's not just that, you know, you are coming up with a documentation but also making sure that, you know, you have a conversation about it. So it's not a project that just dies at the end of the documentation, but it also involves, you know, conversation, discussions, and, uh, you know, continuing improvement and involvement of the documentation as the needs arise. So I would say there's definitely an interactive component uh, to my practice, which I, you know, as as you know, I I very much appreciate. Thanks, Young. Uh, Maybe to pivot a little bit, um, were there any classes in law school that you found were particularly helpful to your practice? Uh, And did you have any background, other background, prior experience that you found was particularly helpful uh, in in your day-to-day work? I can say for myself, just so you you don't feel too bad with whatever your answer is, that I had zero experience. I'm not sure I even knew what a private equity fund was when I joined the firm. And in terms of law school classes, the only class that I really found was at all helpful was corporate tax, and that's just because our practice tends to overlap with tax quite a lot, and it was a helpful background and helpful to just understand the framework of structures generally, Um, but it's not exactly like it's a prerequisite in any way, in my view, um, or that I actually learned any substantive tax law that I apply on a day-to-day basis especially since, as you know, most of our work is with partnerships uh, rather than corporations, and I did not take partnership tax. But, you know, did you have any classes that you found were particularly helpful? Yeah, I think that's right. For me, um, I thought, you know, 
uh, in terms of non-tax work, I thought corporations and securities laws were helpful because uh, comparing it to a language, uh, you, you know, it's you, know, you start with learning the basic words, and, and then you move on to you know connecting those words into phrases, and then you know making sentences and making conversation afterwards. Uh, taking those two classes helped with basic terminology that we use, you know, day in day out in, in my practice at least, um, and the various legal, you know, uh, structures. So, you know, I would characterize them as like the main cast of, you know, my day to day practice in, in, in my work. Um, in terms of the tax work, I agree with you. Corporate tax is super helpful, but before you take corporate tax, most law schools offer U.S. federal income tax as the first layer. So it's almost like a litmus test where, uh, to, to see if you are really into tax and you might have uh, an interest in pursuing a tax career. But U.S. federal income tax was also helpful. Uh, if you're adventurous and want further exposure, I would also encourage taking partnership tax because a lot of my practice area involves both corporations but also limited partnerships. That's just my take on it. Uh, a lot of the component is you know you, you learn on the go, and that's the best that's the best course we will take. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely, Young. I think we all generally assume that the law students joining the firm have almost no knowledge of the area, and it's sort of our duty to train them up. And, and Rooks has sort of a preeminent training program generally, um, and will train associates both on this specific area and on just more generally the corporate work that we do at the firm. And, you know, like Young said, of course, the most important learning is the learning that you do on the job uh, and the time that we, as, you know, lawyers who are already at the firm, can put into the newer associates to help, you know, train you up uh, and teach you things. So you should not feel like there's some magic course that you have to take, and if you haven't taken it, you'll somehow be behind. Um, it's, it's incumbent on all of us to make sure we're all on the same page um, and sort of train people up as we go. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of the challenges you face in your practice. What do you see as some of the more difficult areas or aspects of, of managing your practice? This is an interesting and, you know, uh, you know, a very rewarding job, right? And I think personally for me, it you know, one of the challenges that I face is just uh, trying to keep myself with, uh, you know, whatever's current in the market because, um, you know, the fact of the matter is our clients are constantly pursuing, you know, new areas, um, opportunities, and new ideas, new techniques. Um, so keeping current. Um, and maybe one example is that, you know, these days it's very popular to see credit funds that go out and make debt investments um, in a broad sense of that term. But maybe that was not the, not, not the case, you know, uh, you know, a couple of days, decades ago. And the popularity of credit funds uh, was helped by some regulatory changes um, that happened back in, you know, the great, the so-called great financial crisis that we had uh, starting in 2007. So um, with that change uh, came the surge and popularity of credit funds that we see today. And we could we could have other trends um, right now, or new, even other new trends in the future. And so. Keeping myself current with these developments is is um, is not easy, easy, but also interesting and rewarding. So th I would say this is actually not a bad area if you are interested in you know learning and keeping yourself abreast with uh, you know new stuff like new ideas and new products. And um, what's good about that is like you can be a part of that movement too. 
So, you know, you might be reacting uh, to some sort of background change that may have prompted and facilitated some change that you are seeing in the market that you want to be current with. But then it doesn't mean that you're just on the receiving end because what your pen puts into paper also in terms of developing what the market practice is. And so there's always room for you to make suggestions. And in, in that sense, it's, it's very, very interesting. Thanks. That's consistent with my experience, I would say, too. I think it's a good way to constantly be learning and acquiring new skills. I've had a big focus area of late has been these special purpose acquisition companies called SPACs, which are blank check companies that go public without having a portfolio company yet and then go out and buy the portfolio company. And there was a brief period a few months ago where I just suddenly got an influx of questions about SPACs and I was suddenly working on SPACs. And then, you know, as that trend dies down, I moved away from that kind of work and on to the next big thing, seed investments in managers, or there's all, all different types of, of trends and, and new rules and considerations to take into account. And so I agree, I think it always keeps you on your toes. Uh, I, I, I found similarly that that's an enjoyable part of the practice, but also a challenging one. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about the culture of your group and the culture of the firm generally. What's mentorship look like for you? What's your relationship between different people in, in the group? And can you talk just a little bit more about how you feel integrated into the group. Just to preface this, I think for you know for law students who are considering different uh, law firms, for me personally, uh, having a second look visit, what's called a second look visit, after you've been extended an offer to join the firm, uh, you know, as a summer associate, um, there's often an opportunity for you to do what what's you know quote unquote a second look, so that you can go and meet the people and actually talk about their jobs and the culture and etc. So that really helped for me because it kind of cemented my impression, you know, about the really really nice and excellent culture um, at Rogues that I've been hearing about. Um, and you know, these days we we hear about you know different firms all talking about you know the wonderful collegial cultures um, they 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 have. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I guess uh, collegial can mean, you know, different things in, in different environments uh, and, different, and for different firms because um, it's, it's, it's a rather subjective as opposed to an objective standard. But at least for, you know, Ropes and the asset management group in particular that I, you know, that, that, uh, that I'm in, uh, you know, I think it, among different things, it, for me, it comes down to, uh, working with you know colleagues who are respectful, um, and I've also heard you know the phrase smart and assuming to describe Brooks' culture in general, and also you know people are just incredibly patient, right? And I'll get you know I'll get to why how you know how that kind of mattered for me um, in a moment, but I, I guess starting with respectful, you know I had the pleasure of working with you know as a very very junior associate, working with a very very senior uh, attorney uh, in our group. And, you know, from day one, uh, I kid you not, the conversation cannot have been more respectful. Um, you know, uh, you know, I, I received a call from Raj Marfatia, um, and, you know, Raj, you know, went over the uh, details of the transaction. And also, as, as time went on and we developed our relationship on, you know, with respect to that particular client team, there came a moment where we had, you know, uh, some, um, some additional... Uh, uh, 
member to join that team? And Raj just came to me to ask that question. Young, what do you, how do you feel about having this additional member as part of our team because our business is growing? Um, I was a second-year associate. I never would have thought that I was could have been a part of that conversation at all. But here was I, you know, talking about, you know, uh, you know, the the client team and the projects that I've been working with Raj and also potentially grown the team with Raj. <laughs> so I feel like it ropes your opinion matters and, you know, the conversations and discussions cannot be more respectful. And lastly, on patience, I think this could speak to many people, you know, many people who get into law and also particularly in law firms because uh, we're all, we all know that we're getting into a very, you know, um, dedicated space. And it's, it's a question of, are you in a safe environment to grow? And at Ropes, you know, you find, you find these people who are just incredibly patient with you. You know, um, I've had many instances where I made, you know, uh, mistakes and, you know, things I could have done differently, but it wasn't at all like, you know, trying to, you know, locate the source of the blame or, you know, any conversation about, um, you know, those things, but uh, more like on the constructive side of, you know, how we can make things better as a group. I have to tell you, I could not agree more with everything that you said. I really share your experience. So, so thanks for putting it into words. It can be hard to articulate sometimes, but I, I've had similar experiences with Raj Marfatia, but also really across the board, working with someone like Larry Rowe, who's super senior, or Peter Laborn, who's one of the heads of the practice group, really across the board, people want your take on things. And it's not a rigid hierarchy because there's an understanding that we hire smart, capable people and we want everyone to perform as highly as they can. And that doesn't mean that you're on your own and no one's here to help you, but there's definitely a sense of we, we trust that your input is valuable because we know that you're might be you know more in depth on the situation that's happening, even though the partner might have more experience. And, that, and I think that that plays also into part of respecting the diversity of people's backgrounds and understanding that people might just approach the same problem from a different perspective because they come from a diverse background or they've had different experiences doing different kinds of work before working at the firm or since working at the firm. Really, there's lots of different ways that you can be getting to the particular project that you're working on. And so understanding that just because someone's more senior doesn't mean that they're necessarily always going to know the right answer. I, I haven't heard the, the smart but unassuming piece before, but I think it's a great it's a great descriptor of many people we work with. Uh, I think Justin Clicker comes to mind for me as one of the smartest people I've ever spoken with, but also one of the most unassuming people I've ever spoken with. And it's really an amazing, uh, an amazing thing to to be working with him and having him respect your opinion, but then being sort of awed with his ability to quickly comprehend things and and produce complex analysis. The the whole notion of respecting each other's ability to do work is also respecting each other's time and understanding that we all bring value to the table and we all have other commitments that are pulling at our attention on the side. And we all want to support each other to get to the same common goal, but we all are still functioning and having our own lives on the side outside of work. Um, and I've always found that the group is very supportive of that. Um, and, and I imagine you've, you've found the same. Um, can you talk about whether that is what you found and then also maybe tell us something you like to do in your spare time? 
Absolutely. I completely agree. That's that's how I found ropes to be. And just to add with just one anecdote, uh, when I was invited to one of the you know, offering receptions for NYU law students, Richard Batchelder, who was the hiring partner at that time, came, you know, came in front of us and, you know, did a toast. And among his remarks were that Oaks is a firm that people eventually want to end up in one way or another. You might start at Ropes, you might like it, you might still want to stick, you know, people usually stick around. Or even might, you might start at another firm, but they also eventually want to come to a firm that's, you know, that has breadth and the depth of the practice areas that it can, that, that it does, but also a good collegial working culture. And at that time, I just thought, you know, that was just a slogan uh, for law students to, um, you know, uh, spur interest in the firm. But, you know, I, I cannot find a better word to, you know, to describe Rose. So switching to uh, personal time, <laughs> I used to, you know, enjoy, you know, outdoor activities, including sports, small sports, and, you know, uh, traveling was one of my bigger things, <laughs> and also trying out new foods, because New York City offers so much in terms of options. Um, and just, you know, sitting out in Central Park, you know, even sitting on a coffee, I think the quality of the coffee and just in general, the, the, the cuisine landscape is just um, fantastic. But <laughs> after I, you know, I had my first child, um, which was also my, first, my only child, uh, um, I, you know, I spend most of my time chasing after <laughs> my, my baby daughter. Um, so during the last two years, uh, I'll have to say there was really uh, a focus of making sure that I spend and invest the right amount of time in, uh, for, my, uh, for my child. And you know what? Ropes was really helpful in that regard because we have systems, platforms, and uh, people just general understanding in place to make sure that people understand that family matters and that you know they're willing to you know step up for you and fill in for you to make sure that you're spending the right amount of time with your family. Now it doesn't mean that you know it's a free ride and free path to just not doing your work because obviously this is a work setting, but it's making sure that um, you know people have uh, the right amount of time they want for their families and making sure that we have the support in place. So for me, it involves um, taking taking three months for my paternity leave, which is pretty much the longest paternity that I've heard from, from all of my, you know, male friends. Um, but also coming back, you know, a general understanding that I have a kid at home, you know, working in a COVID environment where I have background, you know, you know, you know, <laughs> noises from my kids playing, they're all very understanding. And so, um, uh, you know, in, in that regard, I think ropes really takes the box for me because naturally ropes, uh, as culture was, uh, was also, you know, supportive of, you know, of, of your outside time uh, and including family. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I think a lot of my personal time, thanks to Ropes, <laughs> has been chasing after my daughter. Yeah, a lot of that, a lot of that is true for me too. Not, not to say that, you know, um, everyone spends their time here the same way, but it happens to be I have two, <laughs> yeah, two young boys terrorizing my house on on the regular, and I spend probably most of my um, free time with them, um, either watching ridiculous videos or, or playing ridiculous games. Um, but I, I totally agree that Ropes, you know, is about as supportive as I could have possibly imagined uh, from a firm. You know, as I said earlier, the culture is really just about 
getting good work done, but understanding that we all have other things going on in our lives and trying to be respectful of that. And I never have to worry that, you know, if I have to pick up my kid from school or from camp or whatever, that it'll be some issue with work. I just tell the people I'm working with that, hey, I'm not available at that time. I got to get my kid from school and I've never had a problem. And I think the same is true, even if your interest is not, you know, kids per se, right? If you have other things going on in your life, um, other things you have to attend to, weddings you have to go to, the like, right? We all understand that work is a priority, but not the only priority. And family is a, is a probably more important priority. And there's other, you know, competing priorities that people have in their lives. And we're all just trying to find the right balance and just trying to be respectful, you know, and the way Young said, not a free pass. I, I think the point is that, you know, the culture, that expectation in return is that you're also respectful of other people's time, right? And so we try very hard. You know, I would say in general, when I uh, am pushed, it's usually that I'm pushing myself because I don't want my colleagues to be suffering and I find the same from others. So, you know, I think that that's generally true about the, about the firm as a whole. Well, I think we could go on and on forever here since there's a lot to unpack. But uh, thanks so much for joining me, Young, and sharing your insights. Uh, and thank you to our listeners. We hope you found this episode to be helpful. If there's a specific practice area or group you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please do reach out to me directly. I'd love to hear from you. Or if you have any other suggestions for content, I'm happy to hear about that. If you're a law student or a recent graduate and you want to learn more about the firm, please feel free to visit our website at ropesgrayrecruiting.com or check us out on Instagram at ropesgray. You can subscribe to this series wherever you typically listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. There'll be future episodes coming out in the coming weeks, so please listen out for those. Thanks again for listening and have a wonderful day.